Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So today is a really special day for me. This is a really fun episode and one that I hope will feed your soul in more ways than one. Lydia Bastianich is here. Lydia is, of course, the amazing chef from PBS. You know her from Lydia's Kitchen, Lydia Celebrates America. She's also a restaurateur. She owns a number of restaurants in New York City and across the country, really. And uh, she's incredible. Lydia has been spending this quarantine with her 99-year-old mother, and she actually did a special for PBS, a two-part special that aired back in May called Eating In With Lydia, really focusing on uh, recipes that you can cook during this time, very simple things with things that you have on hand. And uh, it's available to stream on YouTube, on PBS. So go check that out. It's a really cool special, and there's a lot of really interesting things in there. And I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before, but I love fresh local food. I'm part of an organic CSA here in Massachusetts, and that has been my savior during this time. I go once a week, so they pick a lot of it for you, and it's in a barn, and you go and grab your share. But then they let you go out in the fields and pick blueberries or string beans, tomatoes, basil. It's just such a great way to get out and, uh, you know, be in the outdoors for a little bit and then have some amazing fresh ingredients to cook with. And I've also gotten really ambitious with my cooking in this time. Like a lot of people, I started a sourdough starter at the beginning of this quarantine and have been baking sourdough loaves like crazy. I've got one that I'm going to be putting in the oven a little later today. It's literally rising as we speak. And it is just so cool to be able to bake your own bread. My birthday was back in July, and my mother-in-law and my wife went in on a uh, pasta maker for me, one of the ones that attaches to the front of a KitchenAid. It's a pasta cutter that does like fettuccine and spaghetti. But the next thing I want to get is a pasta extruder so I can uh, make penne's and, you know, macaroni and things like that. But uh, I am fully on board with the making your own food and uh, Italian food especially. And I got to say, as I was prepping for this show, I saw Lydia making pizza. And she had mentioned at one point her grandmother having sourdough starter around. And I was just thinking about, you know, yeast, and it probably wasn't commercially available when she was growing up. And so I looked up how to make pizza crust with sourdough starter and found a great recipe. And now I've made, I don't know, five, six pizzas. (laughs) So... I'm I'm fully there, and I was so excited to talk to Lydia. She also has a memoir that came out about two years ago now. It's called My American Dream, A Life of Love, Family, and Food. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about her history because I, I wanted to get into it in the interview, and we ended up just talking about food the whole time. So <laughs> I didn't get a chance to, but she has really a, an incredible life. She was born right at the end of World War II in a part of the world called the Istrian Peninsula, Istria. Right before she was born, it was a part of Italy. Italy lost World War II, and this territory ended up becoming part of communist Yugoslavia. So she's part of an Italian family growing up in an area that had been Italy up until recently, and then all of a sudden is under communist rule. They couldn't practice their religion. They couldn't speak Italian, and uh, it was a rough time. So her family actually ended up uh, escaping across the border into Italy as refugees, They lived in a refugee camp for a little while that was actually a a former concentration camp. It had been a concentration camp during the war that then became a refugee camp for a lot of these people fleeing Istria. And eventually she made her way to the United States, to New York, and started over. And it's just so incredible when you hear her story 
And again, we don't get into a lot of that history here, but I feel like it's important backstory to kind of understand who Lydia is and, and the world she came from, you know, coming to the to the United States in the 1950s. Just think about sort of that was the era of progress, right? Everything was futuristic at that point. The Jetsons was on TV and the space race was getting started. And, you know, it was just a time of immense progress in America and in the food world, too. You know, a lot of things that came out of World War II were suddenly part of the American lifestyle at home. You know, ready-made kind of TV dinners were really foods that had fed the troops just a handful of years earlier during the war. And now they're being sold on grocery store shelves and, you know, frozen foods and convenience foods, cake mixes, all that kind of stuff was was appearing on on grocery store shelves in the States. And there was a disconnect with sort of where food came from and growing your own. People were moving away from that lifestyle and getting very disconnected from it. So that's sort of the America that Lydia moved to. But when you hear about her childhood in Istria, she actually lived in the city. Uh, it was a city called Pola. Now it's called Pula. But a lot of her childhood was spent on her grandmother's farm just outside the city in a small village. And the way that they lived on this farm was the way that people had been living in Italy and in that part of Europe for hundreds of years, preserving things, not having refrigeration, just, you know, learning the traditional ways of curing a pig's leg to make it into prosciutto or curing milk to make it into cheese or you know, vegetables, how to can and preserve those and, and store them, how to braid garlics and onions. These are all the things that Lydia grew up doing. And for me, as somebody who is just starting to get into preserving and canning and cooking and all this, this was like a dream come true. And it's also interesting because, you know, I really just started getting into food in the last couple of years, I would say the last four to five years. And in a lot of ways, this conversation with Lydia reminds me of conversations that I wish I had had with my grandmother when she was alive. She died uh, about four years ago now, and I grew up just down the street from her. So I would see her pretty much every day of my childhood. And my grandmother had a very similar childhood to Lydia's. She's probably about 15 years older than Lydia, but uh, she grew up on a farm in Michigan with no electricity, and she learned how to cook for herself, how to bake, how to preserve things. And I remember even once she moved to Ohio and lived in a very suburban neighborhood where I grew up, they still had a garden in the backyard for most of my life. They grew tomatoes and zucchini and all sorts of things like that. And they canned a lot of it. They had a little root cellar under their front porch that had dirt walls and a dirt floor, and it was just covered in mason jars. And it's something that I knew my grandmother did. It always freaked me out to eat the canned vegetables. It wasn't something that I ever was really into. And it wasn't something I even understood, but it's something that she brought from her childhood. And now, you know, my grandmother's gone. I can't ask her about that. I can't learn about that. But this interest that may have started, you know, at three or four years old, seeing my grandmother's root cellar, it has now flowered in me and has turned into this big part of my identity. So in some ways, I felt like I was I was talking to my own grandmother, talking to Lydia, which was really comforting and really nice. And, you know, I will say one other thing. This interview is a little tougher to hear than some of the other ones. And part of that is just sort of where we are in this quarantine, <laughs> you know, not being able to to go to studios and record. You know, I record all my guests as phone interviews. They call in and uh, I patch their phone call in. And unfortunately, the sound quality is 
is up to the phone system to some extent, you know, and uh, if if Lydia was in a spot with bad cell reception or maybe I had bad cell phone reception that day, I don't know, but uh, her connection was not the greatest. It's not the highest quality of all my interviews, but you can still hear her. You can definitely understand what she's saying. It's just not as crystal clear as uh, as some of the others, but it's just a function of the times and the technology and where we all are, that we're all stuck in our homes and can't get to beautiful recording studios. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something out of it. I hope it, you know, brings you some zen and relaxation because it definitely did that for me. Here is my interview with Chef Lydia Bastianich. Well, I want to start by just sort of asking you about the last five months. How has this quarantine been treating you? And, you know, how have you kept busy during this time? Let me tell you, it threw the whole way of life upside down. So uh-huh. many things have changed, you know, starting with the, the restaurants, the, the businesses, you know, closing them. You know, all these people that you've known, some of them I've known for 39 years have worked for me. And, you know, there's nothing I could do for them. And so, you know, how how this has really turned our world upside down. So dealing with that, dealing with, you know, my son and my daughters and the business, the actual business aspect of all of the restaurants and the people was one part. Then I have a 99-year-old mother that lives with me, yep. you know, making sure that taking care of her, that she doesn't come in contact with the virus and having, you know, keeping a, a really a quarantine house. and cooking for her, but, you know, that's not unusual. But while I was cooking for her, uh, there are other elderly couples in my neighborhood. So I would cook for more, and I would deliver twice a week to them. It kept me busy, but also it kept me sort of working to correct somewhat this situation, to help someone that is having difficulties in this situation. So it's been a lot lately staying at home, a lot of Zooming, a lot of video chats. Uh, I work the garden. I really get into my garden. We always have a small garden. Yeah. And, you know, we, we do it every year. But this year, you know, I really got into it. Lots of tomatoes and, and cucumbers and string beans and Swiss jars. And the basil now is really coming. I planted a lot of basil and I'm going to make a lot of pesto. And uh, I already delivered some pesto to these older couples, you know. And that's that to them is a big deal because all they have to do, I even bring them pasta, you know, I have my own pasta. So so they have a meal. So, you know, I'm still going in that mode of uh, being with nature, still somewhat in quarantine and uh, trying to see ahead. What is ahead? What is there anything? Can we plan, foresee, you know? And so far, I don't feel that I can, you know, usually you plan for the future. You know, we're not in control. Yeah. I don't know where we're going. Yeah. Well, and I feel like we haven't known what the end point of this is. Like, that's made it really challenging for me. Like, in March when this all started, people were talking about reopening by May. And then by May, it was clear that that wasn't going to happen. And I feel like now the big question is schools for the fall. You know, in some places they've started to open up. But will the school year start? Will it be in person? If it does go to in person, will that you know, have to shift by October? Will we will we be back to virtual learning? And, you know, you talk about the restaurant business. Like, I just think about, I don't, I don't know how it's sustainable to operate a restaurant right now because you have to have such low capacity to keep with the social distancing, 
And I'm sure you must be wrestling with just the concern of, you know, the waiters and the chefs and all that of, are they being exposed because diners have to take their masks off when they're eating, right? Exactly. You feel, you know, like no matter what you do, no matter where you turn, there's an opportunity for something to go wrong. It yeah. seems that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we do, my kids, my son and my daughter did open Lupa and did uh, open Casamono. These are small places that have an option to put tables outside. Yeah. And they are downtown, in Irving Place and in the village where New Yorkers still live and still, to some extent, walk the street. Up down. There's nobody up down. There's nobody, you know, the businesses are, are, are what they are. A lot of people are working from home. So all the other restaurants are closed. Yeah. We have in Westchester one open. So it's outside what you can get outside. And, you know, basically you hire the minimum staff uh, that you can support. And it's almost a break even, but just the satisfaction of maybe working, of being there, yeah. of continuing what we love to do. But, you know, so far, it's a break-even situation. And thank God for that, because in the first few weeks, uh, we were kind of money out of our pocket to pay for this. Yeah, it's better better to break even than to lose money, I guess, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So you're listening, you know, still they're postponing always the eating inside. And, you know, on the other hand, I understand it, you know. You don't want your customers, your workers, or yourself to, to get sick. So, you know, all the money in the world is not worth it. Right. It's uh, There's so much to consider, and it feels like that data is changing every day. So it's I'm sure it must be tough to be in your shoes. I, I want to talk, too, about sort of the TV side of, of your work. And, you know, you did these two specials for PBS back in May, Eating In With Lydia, kind of focusing on simple things that you can do at home and, you know, just simple home cooking, I guess. And th- that special was shot by your grandson, right? Yes, my grandson. So, you know, my consideration also is talking about school. I have five grandchildren, Yeah. Uh, one in high school and the other ones are in college. And so you're always worried. But yes, they're very savvy with the social media and all of that. So, you know, he shot them. And then I got used to it. Let me tell you, this morning I did a Zoom in. With the, the uh, Al Roker time, you know, they're oh, yeah, uh, yep. Al Roker. He's doing like the 24-hour yeah, thing, yeah. Yeah, I just did it this morning. Yesterday, we filmed, you know, I do a special, uh, Lydia Celebrates America. Uh-huh. So, you know, how do you keep those things going? So we filmed it outside, part of it, you know, just part of it, and then we'll edit it all together in, in my yard, around, you know, distancing from, there was just a cameraman and a sound man. I put on my own microphone. It was all disinfected. So, you know, it's it's a whole new way of doing things and uh, talking about television. Right. You know, I mean, this morning I set myself all up by myself. You know, I tried and zoomed in. I did my sandwich and uh, bye, Al, bye, bye. You know, I did it all <laughs> myself. Right. I did my makeup by myself, all of this. So it's all kind of. And in a way, you know, I don't mind. It's, it's you roll up your sleeve and you make it happen. Yeah. Now radio is a little bit easier. Right. Or podcast. Yeah, you can you can dial into a show like mine or, uh, you know, from anywhere. Yeah. That makes it a lot easier. Absolutely. I want to tell you. You talked about gardening, and I'm reading your book right now, My American Dream. That you know, talking uh-huh. about growing up uh, in in Istria, and just sort of. To me, it sounds like an idyllic childhood, and it, it really resonates right now. I know the book's about two years old, but like hearing 
stories of of your grandmother's garden, Nona Rosa, and and kind of growing up, you know, farming with her. Just what are some of the memories that you have from that time? Well, I, I think that that's where you know my my passion. That's where my roots were started. Let's say for what I did the rest of my life, you sure. know, with my grandmother. And the times after, right after immediately after World War Two. Well, also meager times, you know, so food, so working the land, it really made me understand, you know, at a very young age that, you know, this dirt that's on the floor, if you will, can feed you, gives you gifts, how nature operates and, you know, how we need to understand more and respect it, you know. And the more I got into it, you know, my grandmother, we had everything. She had everything from corn, from wheat, we made our own olive oil. You know, she didn't have that many, you know, maybe 25 olive oil trees. But that was enough olive oil for the whole year for the family. She had a field of wheat. And during the harvest, she would have, uh, she would go to the milk with the grain and and mill it and have flour almost for the whole year. And so on down the line. The potatoes, she would say. The onions, I think we would, I remember plucking the onions when they were just about dry and ripe and then letting them dry a little more, and then we would braid them and hang them in the cantina. We did the same with the garlic. Uh, beans, you know, string beans, uh, if you let them grow, they become pods, regular bean pods, and if you let them dry, they become regular dry beans, kidney beans or whatever. Yeah. I remember harvesting those. I remember shelling them and uh, let, drying them in the sun, and that was the whole winter for soups for Minestra. And all of this stayed with me, this passion into food. So uh, coming to coming to America, which was a whole new opportunity, that stayed with me. And I always made reference in my food when I went, even here, you know, and everything, when I first came here in America, everything was so convenient. You know, you went to the grocery store, to the right. food store, and you just, everything was packaged, everything was there. But my, my heart always went out to the country. I mean, I would go to Lancaster country, I would go to, to the farmer's and I loved getting back into really nature. So, you know, now in these times, having this little garden really brings me back. And I recall everything I did with grandma. And I sort of tried to duplicate it again. And I'm grateful, you know, being understanding how much we should appreciate uh, evermore. And I think America is really going into that, that direction, even before all of this. The appreciation of real food, honestly, the small farmers. And how much they have to work, you know. Yeah. And I remember my my grandmother sometimes one hailstorm would knock all the grapes off and no wine that year. And the whole year's work, right. you know, how the risk that these farmers take in labor and all of that. And you know, sometimes they could lose it all. Yeah, it is interesting. Like like you say, I feel like we were headed in this direction for a while. And I know like we've been members of CSAs in our area for the last probably four or five years now. And just really feeling that connection to the land in a way that's very distinct from the grocery store. You know, I started last year uh, canning my own tomato sauce and I had never done that before. <laughs> and it just gives you a whole different appreciation. And the taste is completely different, too. But like you know, you think about all the work that goes into it and, you know, a can of tomato sauce is $3 or something at the grocery store, but the time that goes uh-huh. into it and the work, but yeah, the appreciation in the end, when when you taste that sauce, and I, I literally just ran out of my last jar 
probably about a month ago, but it, you know, it sustained me from August, September of last year until, you know, June or July of this year. So there is something nice about just sort of kind of understanding where your food comes from, right? Absolutely. It's a direct relationship with nature. Yeah. You are kind of, nature is giving you gifts if you take the time to communicate with nature, to work it and whatever. And that is beautiful, you know? Instead of, you know, going and somebody, you don't know where this came from, who did it or whatever, you go in the backyard. You know, I'm going to go today and get some string beans and make lunch for Grandma and I. Yeah. And these string beans have never seen the refrigerator. They, they they taste differently. And they're just a great satisfaction. Yeah. And I'm curious, too, you mentioned the cantina and sort of storing these things and, you know, braiding the onions and things like that. Like, paint the picture for me of what that cantina looked like. That It was literally like a like a cellar where, so, where so, food was stored, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was a cellar. So let me, you know, let me paint the whole picture. My grandmother, we had a courtyard. And what happened in this courtyard, the, the whole town was one road, and it was a white road. And there were houses on one side of the road and houses on the other side of the road. Uh, at that time, maybe there were 30 houses in total. And okay. that was the fact. And so a little road out of the main road, if you will, came into this courtyard. And this courtyard uh, was my mother's extended family. It was her father, my grandfather, my grandmother, my grandfather's and a sister had a house next to it. So there were Three houses in the courtyard of sisters and brothers. And your mother grew up in this in this complex, right? That was that was where she spent her childhood. She, she grew up in this complex, and I would go and spend lots of time, especially after communism. You know, my my mother didn't uh, didn't want us to be in communist in the city because the city is Pula, because they didn't allow you to speak Italian, they didn't mm. allow you to go to church and all of that. So she sent us a lot out in the same courtyard that she grew up. And there, the courtyard then had an extension. On one side, it had all the gardens. And going up, they had all the pens for the animals. We had chickens, we had ducks, we had geese, we had pigs, we had goats, we had rabbits, we had uh, um, uh, squab. And all of this, you know, all of these animals needed to be fed and needed to be, you know, you needed to clean the pens ultimately ended up in, in the pot. <laughs> and in one corner, there was a big mulberry tree in the middle. And the mulberry tree makes a lot of shade. And when the mulberries are ripe, they're good. You know, we ate them early in the morning. They were black mulberries. You yeah. can have old, old blonde mulberries. But these were black. And we would eat them in the morning because they were nice and cool. Then they got too hot. But they would fall down. And the chickens and the geese and all of that, they would come and eat and have their lunch. In one corner, there was a cantina. And this cantina was uh, an edifice, a small, you know, edifice. It was kind of half underground. Behind it was the garden. And they had one window onto the garden. And this is, it was half under the ground, so it was cool. And it had windows on both sides and, of course, the door. And it was around this cantina that everything sort of was stored and happened. In one corner, it was Grandpa's barrels and his wine and his grappa. And then from from there, on the beams of the ceiling, he would have prosciutto hanging. He would have his pancetta hanging. Because every November, we had the slaughter of the pigs. And he would make his own 
sausages, his own prosciutto, his own uh, capocollo, his own uh, uh, bacon slab and lard. And all of this would be with nails. This kind of wooden beans would have nails on both sides. Uh-huh. And the prosciutto and all of that would be hanging. And that was close to the wine and all of that. And it was a great, when you went in, you can smell of it. You could smell the wine. You can smell the prosciutto. And then in the other corner, there was grandma's vegetables. So it was like she would portion it off with wood planks and the potatoes would be in one corner. In another corner, she would have the grain and loose. And when she needed flour, she would take the grain and burl up bags and we would go to the mill. Uh-huh. Then there was around the wall, there were shelves. Again, wooden shelves. And that's where the tomatoes, the oil would be uh, stored, you know, the dried beans, the dried chechi, all of that. And again, on the wall, wherever there was nails, that's where the onions would be hanging and the garlic would be hanging. I could still recall the aromas that came from all of these things. It was ventilated because it had two windows. They would put kind of a screen on so that the flies wouldn't go in or create damage. All of these things were in there. And slowly, going towards the summer, it would empty out uh, more and more more. We dried figs. We had dried figs, and they were hanging up on on the beans. We had dried raisins. My grandfather would cut a whole cluster, a nice cluster, you know how the grape grows? Sure, it yeah. has the stem, and the stem is attached to the to the branch. And he would cut the branch like into a T, and then the stem would come down and the, the cluster would break. And he would hang this onto two nails on the beans, uh, and with the air circulating, they would dry. First, they would get the sun treatment when the sun was in the middle of summer, you know, hot and all of that. And the wind, this would all get kind of begin to dry outside. Yeah. And then it was moved into the cantina for the winter. So, you know, going in there, there was always something good. To, you know, either you take a fig or you take, although everything was kind of portioned off. The figs were all tied into, what's that a bush called? It has yellow flowers. And it has, it's not a grass, it's a bush. It's very pliable. Hmm. And it's almost like thread. And that's what they would put the figs on like a necklace okay. with a bay leaf in between. So they would put a fig, a bay leaf, uh, a fig, a bay leaf. Bay leaves are antibacterial. Okay. They use bay leaves a lot. And they had also on the walls in the cantina branches of bay leaves. And, you know, and I assume it was for this antibacterial purpose. Yeah, that's such a vivid picture. And it just... Oh, it makes me so excited. And and what, what's really cool to me is, like, this would have been, what, the late 40s, early 50s? Yeah, yeah, 48, 49, 50, yeah. 51, 52, yeah. So, yeah, like, that era would have been what I kind of think of as modern times. You know, with here in the States, at least, we had refrigeration and things like that. But these are yeah. kind of these these ancient methods, right, that, like, your ancestors three, four hundred years earlier were probably storing food in much the same way. Yes. You know, I always say, now I'm 70-something, but it seems like I lived through two generations, two, three generations. You know, fast forward into America from those settings. I mean, my grandmother didn't have refrigerators. We didn't use much butter or whatever, but when she did, you know, she used to buy it because we didn't have cows. We had goats. Goats would make ricotta, but the goat milk is not that fatty, so you don't make butter. 
But I think, you know, when she, she would buy some butter or something, she would keep it in a, in a bowl of water. Hmm. So it doesn't, you know, just then the butter would float on the water. And that's how she kept it cool, you know. Oh. And all of these things that, uh, when I think about it, I think, oh, my God, I must have lived through two, three generations. Right. It was from there to this modern time. Yeah, no, it's so cool. And And just thinking, too, about, you know, part of what I love about Italian food, I think, is that it's just... A lot of it is very simple in terms of just taking really fresh ingredients and combining them sort of at, at the peak of their taste, right? Like, it's not a complicated cuisine to make, I guess, or it doesn't have to be. It's not. It's not. It's taken, you know, it has good traditional ingredients, in season, simple oil, garlic, you know, a little bit, and let the ingredient shine. Yeah. Now, I think the artisan tree in Italian food comes from exactly what we were talking about, preserving for the whole year, cheeses. Yep. The whole story of different cheeses is preserving milk when it's in season, when the springtime and summertime, and turning it into cheese. And the art, how each region, you know, whether it's cow's milk and Grana Padano and Sardegiano and all of that, or if you go down south, Pecorino, sheep's milk and all of that, and how they cured it, the pastures, of course, the flavor of the milk, they kept them in caves. And these are the products that still today that sort of, they accumulated so much flavor in them. And then eating and cooking with them, the prosciutto is the same thing. You know, right. how do you prolong the life of a ham? And I think that Italians are, were really masters and what is not known as the traditional products. That is a chicken example, you know. They have a lot of the Trebbiano grapes in, in Modena and that area, a lot of it. And they boiled it down. You know, they intensified it and let it ferment and, you know, age it and so on. And then balsamic vinegar. And so now using those ingredients brings a wallet of Italian flavor. Right. And they continue to do those, those traditional ingredients. Yeah. I mean, for me to cook Italian, I absolutely need those traditional ingredients because right. they are the ones that deliver the flavor. Yeah, it's completely, if you, if you don't have the right olive oil or, you know, something like that, it completely changes the whole dish. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, what you say about just sort of the regional variety that, you know, Italy's not that big of a country relatively, but there are such More than California. Yeah, right. But but like when you think about as, as you're just talking about the different types of cheeses and things, and like it's the same basic method, I guess, the same idea, the same end goal of I need to preserve uh -huh. this milk or I need to preserve this meat or whatever, but that, you know, you can go 10, 15 miles and the way that they do it is completely different. And it just, you know, it's so fascinating how that developed. Well, Italy is, I think it's so diverse. It has 20 regions. Yep. But because that, that little peninsula, which is smaller than California, uh, has such a diverse topography. It's a peninsula. It's surrounded by sea all over. Each sea is different. Yep. And then it has the two, the two mountains, the Alps the, and the Apennines going down. And all the microclimates that are created yeah, by this, this topography, this is what makes Italy and its product so kind of really regional and different and flavorful. It has, you know, I mean, the seeds, sardines, anchovies, uh, tunas, all of this that's preserving fish 
for when they will not have some. Right. And now it's all delicacy. You know, the colatura di alici, you know the colatura, colatura di pesce? I don't think colatura I do. Di pesce. Okay, so colatura di pesce is like the Chinese fish sauce. Okay. And what it is, is when they take the anchovies and they layer it, uh, my grandmother used to do it, in kind of a little wooden barrel, and they layer the anchovies, they clean them, of course, and then salt, anchovy salt, and then they put a weight on it. And so when the salt begins to extract all the moisture from the, from the fish, it kind of drips down and it was collected. Hmm. And this juice falling down from salt and fish and whatever is colatura di pesce. And you can buy it, you know, uh, and they use it. They use it. It's like the Chinese fish sauce. Yeah. It's a byproduct of preserving the anchovies. Exactly. So you're still getting the preserved fish out of it, but you're also taking the juice. Oh, that's so cool. Nothing is wasted. So you see, these are all traditions that now all of a sudden, they become delicacies. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. It it makes me think of lobster in New England, kind of the same thing. You know, it's... uh, it was kind of a peasant's food that was easy to get, and now it's become this this sought-after delicacy. I, I want to ask you, too, in uh, in the special Eating In with Lydia, you, you had mentioned this communal bread oven in your grandmother's village and sort of all the mm-hmm. women going and, and cooking their bread at once, which I, I just thought was mm-hmm. such a cool idea. But it made me wonder sort of what was happening at home. Like, did you have an oven at home? How did things get cooked in the house, or did everything have to go to this kind of central oven? Well, the central oven that I could, there were two in town. Okay. And twice a week they were lit, and you know, you got yourself a mine, you brought the wood, and kneaded the bread, and uh, made sure that, you know, depends where you are online, that it has risen enough, and then you brought it there, and it was nice. It was also a social event. Sure. At home, my grandmother had an open heart. So an open heart, there was a casetanera, a black, we called it the black house. Okay. And in this little black house, uh, there was an open heart, and grandma would cook also for the animals because, you know, the pigs have a sense of the stomach. So, you know, you collected food that was left over and whatever, but you always gave it a boil or whatever because, uh, you know, you wanted to kill any bacteria or anything that was in it. So she would cook for the animals there, but also she would cook for us sometimes. And it was the real old-fashioned way where they, they had a chain coming down in the middle and you hang a pot in the middle. And that's where the soups, when she cooked soups long time, she made there. She cooked polenta, she made it there. And uh, also, she sometimes, you know, like the focaccia, when she cooked, she, she cooked it there under a cap. Like, she had a pan, and then this pan had a cover, like, uh, which went over the pan, and it was round usually. Uh-huh. And she would put in the pan the bread, or sometimes she would even cook chicken or whatever, and then put the cover in there and put it in the heart and put the, the coals mm. on top of all. Just surround it with, with hot coals. Yeah, and on top of whatever. And it would cook, it would bake in there. Then in the other kitchen, because, you know, the regular kitchen, she did have an oven, and it was called uh, the Spacher. I think because it was that was Austrian Hungarian also, so it was kind of a German name. Okay. And that was there was an old metal stove, and uh, you know you cooked on top, and it heated the house. But the baking part, the oven was not that big. Okay. You could bake some bread, two loaves of bread, but you couldn't bake. Uh, you know, she would bake 
three four loaves of bread when when the communal oven was, and she had it for two three days. That it was really country bread. That really, uh, you know, she had it in in a caseta. She would keep it in a in a bread box like that, a big one. Yeah. And she would wrap it in in clean burlap things, and it would last uh, for two three days, sometimes even more. So we did have. Uh, these two other methods of cooking, you know, the open hearth uh, and then the the in-house, the the, spahar, or the stove, we fed it uh, wood. Okay. You know, it had a mouth where you fed wood into it. And on one side, it had like a, a tank where water would, would, uh, would heat itself up. So if you had to wash something or, or wash dishes or whatever. And then uh, there was uh, the whole top was, you know, with cast iron in those circles that you kind of pulled on and off and you take a, a hook kind of a metal hook fit fit into each other the, you know from a large one to a small one depends on the size of the pot that you wanted to put to be on direct fire and and so yeah we cooked there quicker and meals and all of that and then there was of course the open heart grilling uh, on the open heart and all of that was a lot especially summertime and things like that, or fish or whatever. So they used a lot of outside grilling rather than, you know, in the summertime, light up the, right. the, of the stove. Add the heat to the, the house and all that, right? You don't want to do that in the exactly. summer. As you're telling these stories, like, part of me is just getting really romantic and just thinking, like, what what a perfect, <laughs> beautiful childhood that sounds like. But you mentioned earlier just sort of the, uh, I don't know, the austerity of it or, you know, the this was after the war and, and resources were scarce. Like when you look back on that time, do you look at it in, in a romantic sense or, or was it really hard? Was it a struggle? It, it was an idyllic time for me. You uh-huh. know, all the references I make to it made me who I am. And for me, it was, it was beautiful. And I, I recall it all the time. And that's why, you know, I wrote my memoir and all of this. And I go back there every single year. Oh, wow. To that courtyard, because it sort of brings me back to a time, to a beautiful time. Now, when I recall my grandmother working, she was up before the sun. She was in the campagna, she called the way, in, in working because before the sun and the heat came, you know, right. she worked and then she worked and then she worked late into dusk also in the campagna, you know, because of the heat. I mean, sometimes my my, my grandmother. I remember the earth there is red, and she was barefooted in the soil, mm-hmm. you know, plowing the soil, getting the, the, the potatoes out, you wow. know. They didn't have, certainly, tractors. They did have a donkey, and they had kind of that, that hand plow, you know, my, yep. my you grandfather. You kind of pull behind, uh, behind the donkey. Behind the horses. You know, that's the, the main work. And then the rest, they had to do also by hand, you know, because they had the filari, the, the vine uh, lines, and between the vine lines, they left space and they would plant. They would plant vegetables. So they had uh, the vine and then vegetables in between and then the vine again and so on. So, you know, they had to work. It was hard work for them. Uh, it was never-ending work. And that's why I think, you know, even us being small, they used us, you know, in a sense, I would go and pick up the potatoes with her when she would hold the the earth and pull out the plant. And, I mean, go get the beans. Go shell the beans. Yeah. Uh, 
pull up, pull out the tarnish, whatever she needed. You yeah. know, I was, I, yeah, they could use any hands that they could get. Yeah, that that always strikes me just thinking about sort of the hard work of it. You know, when we're talking about like making tomato sauce and stuff. Like, I enjoy it and it's very therapeutic, but there's also a piece of me that sort of knows if I mess up this batch, I can always go to the store and get more. Uh, yeah. Like the idea yeah, that yeah. like your life and your family's life sort of depends on that hard work and that you have to sort of capitalize on that window when you have it because you you want to get everything when it's fresh or, you know, before it starts spoiling. And yeah, it gives you a whole different appreciation. Absolutely. And the maintenance of all of this, you know, sometimes, you know, the curing of the, the prosciutto. Yeah. Didn't go well, and you waste the whole prosciutto. You fed the animal the whole year right. to get it nice and fat and whatever. And then whether it was you know not enough salt was entered in, the 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 blood got putrefied, or a fly laid some eggs in it. And yeah, I remember, I remember those times and how how dramatic it was when something went to waste after they did all of that work. Yeah, because it's a time investment, it's a financial investment, and it's you're well, counting it's on that for nutrition. You're, yeah. not have, you're not going to have that food for the yeah. family. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it makes me feel fortunate we are where we are today. I, I, I want to ask you just sort of about some more about the quarantine and, and sort of cooking patterns and things like that. I noticed even posting these uh, pantry recipes on Instagram and just sort of you know, helping people, especially in the early days of, of these shutdowns, sort of helping people realize that they have more than they think on hand, that like there's always something in the pantry that you can whip up into something delicious. Like, has this time taught us to be more resourceful with the way that we think about food, do you think? I, I think more resourceful. Also, I think what a lot of people uh, lacked confidence, you know? Yeah. They, it was just everything was so convenient. And they just didn't take the time. Now they're sort of trusting in a situation that they have to do. And and what what is happening is that they're beginning to, I sense, beginning to love it. They're put into a situation that maybe they felt they should have been anyway, yeah. paying more attention to them. Now they are. And what I think they see is that, you know, they can make it happen. Everybody can cook something. Everybody can pull together, you know. I mean, I just, was working on a recipe, which we always made, especially with rice and potatoes. So, you know, some potatoes, some carrots, some celery, some tomato paste in a pan, uh, bay leaves, water, and you let all this vegetables kind of cook. And then at the end, you add rice to it. And you have this great soup. We, we, we used to make it all that. We still do. Yeah. It's so, so, you know, everybody has rice. Everybody has potatoes. Everybody has cal- uh, carrots and celery, more or less. Uh, you know, tomato paste, okay, so you don't have tomato paste, you use some, some canned tomatoes or whatever. I mean, even ketchup, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. You can make it happen. Yeah, and I guess that's a piece of it is just sort of realizing that, I don't know, I, I get caught up sometimes, I guess, in, in saying, okay, I need 500 grams of flour for this, but I don't have this. I only have all-purpose flour. Like, I wonder if I can get away with that instead of bread flour. And, like, <laughs> sort of realizing those shortcuts, I think, that's been really eye-opening, at least for me during this time. It's like you don't have to follow the recipe by the book necessarily. Exactly, exactly. And that empowers you and also it empowers the people. You know, I always tell them, I said, you know, you can use the recipe as a guideline. But you can deviate. Actually, it's fun to deviate. Let's see what I have. Let's see what I can substitute. I think, you know, you have to use uh, some knowledge of cooking times, you know, 
I mean, how long will a potato cook? And if I don't have a potato, I'll put a sweet potato, but that sweet potato cooks much faster. Yeah. So, you know, knowing those little, those little nuances, just to time it right. But otherwise, absolutely. Yeah, and it's a, it's a learning process, too. Once you make that mistake, you say, oh, that sweet potato cooks a lot faster, so next time I'll know, you know, and then you sort of build up your repertoire and, and learn how to do absolutely. these things. So after all this this clears up, this pandemic, and, you know, hopefully life goes back to normal and we can go to restaurants again and, you know, have, have a meal out, do you think the interest in home cooking that we've seen surge, you know, over the last couple of months, do you think that stays with us? Oh, absolutely. I think that we will be changed. This will change us, absolutely. We'll be, you know, we'll, we'll I guess, try to get back into, into the mode that we were. But certain things, and especially if you found satisfaction in these things uh, and you found discovery, I think people are going to keep it. And people, you know, getting together, sitting at the table, eating, all of this is, you know, that's, was missing uh, in in, to some extent in our society. I remember, you know, we always did that. And so the the people, when they write to me, they, you know, say eating at the table together. So now it's kind of, we've been forced back into that position. And I think the people are going to continue. Yes, go back to to a lot, but I think there's going to be some changes, some, some basic changes in the way we approach life, especially family life. Yeah, it's kind of a reset that uh, that needed to happen. Uh, I, I want to ask you one last kind of fun question to end it on. You're known for your Italian cooking and obviously grew up, uh, you know, with, with those recipes. If you're not cooking Italian food, what are your other favorite cuisines to make? You know, uh, I based everything on, on, I guess, on my philosophy of cooking in Italian. But I love Thai cuisine. Mm. Uh, and you know, I I don't know uh, enough how to cook it, but I, I make some dishes. You know, like the the, the mixed vegetables, like the jambotto Italian style. This, uh, so I put some soy sauce in there, you know, and, and some ginger. And yeah, the kids, uh, you know, they like uh, Chinese food, Thai food, uh, yeah. Japanese food. That's in vogue. All of those foods. So yeah. I I go there uh, if if I can if I cook and then of course me being on the part of Italy that veers into Middle European you know cooking Middle European food for me is also almost, almost you know it's part of because that area was under the Austrian-Hungarian Empire as well so when I make you know stuffed peppers when I make sarme I make goulash mm. I make uh, palacinka these are sort of I love sauerkraut. Sure, uh, yeah. You know, middle a middle European food. I, I kind of like it. Uh, like to, to venture into those two, just yeah. to be different. I love the simplicity of sauerkraut. I, I started making my own last year, and just, that was sort of my first venture into canning and preserving. And like, it's so simple. <laughs> like, I tell people that's the place to yeah. start because it's just. My grandmother used just... to make it all the time—a big barrel. Yeah. She used to also do turnips. Try turnips, mm. and then turnips, and then you grate them. You know, in the skin and all. Don't cut uh, the, where the stem is. You know, leave a little bit of the the stems and leave the, the root because otherwise, the, the way it ferments, it breaks down. But otherwise, once they're fermented and they're delicious, the smooth turnips, uh, you, she used to grate them on a box grater. She had a different grater, but I just explained to you. And then she used them, you know, in salads and soups and all kinds of stuff. 
Wow. There, there is so much to learn just sort of from those old techniques. And, you know, this has been an awesome conversation just to start diving into it. And it makes me just, you know, want to go to Italy for a month and like learn from somebody (laughs) who's, who's these recipes have been passed down from their families for years. It's so cool. Thank you. Continue, continue your banning, uh, fermenting, whatever you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Lydia, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was an awesome conversation and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm in a nice kind of calm zen place now just talking about food and it makes me uh yeah. makes me happy all right lydia bastianich there Ugh. i could have talked to her all day long i just hearing about that cantina to me i could have done an hour just on the cantina i want to know everything about how it's built i want to replicate one here and then yeah we didn't get to talk about so many other things that i wish we had time for but uh Man, I learned so much. And as she was saying, it feels like she grew up in two or three different generations. I felt like I was getting kind of a time capsule from two, three hundred years ago of like, here's how you treat your food. Here's what to do with it. It's knowledge that was passed on for generations. And I think if not for conversations like this and Lydia writing her memoirs and things, they're very well traditions that uh, that could be lost because we are moving in a more modern direction. So I hope we all take heed of that and listen. I want to tell you real quick about next week. I've got a very, very special week lined up. A new show on Monday with Desi Lydic from The Daily Show. She's a Daily Show correspondent. Very, very funny. And then on Thursday, I'm talking to Allison Camillo, who is the executive producer of Full Frontal with Samantha B. So it's going to be a Ladies of Late Night week next week, talking to two of the women that help make some of the great late night shows that are on TV. And obviously, uh, there's not enough of them. <laughs> there's a, Late night TV is still a very male-dominated field. So I'm really excited to, to have a chance to talk to some of the women that are making awesome late night shows. And uh, I hope you'll be back for both of those. Make sure you hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast player so that you're the first to get new episodes. Again, new episodes are every Monday and Thursday. And I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. Drop me a line. Shoot me a message. I'd love to hear what you guys are up to. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe.